Hi church, if you don't know me, my name is Eric and I'm one of the pastors. We're currently in our sermon series through 2 Corinthians called Bold, and I have the privilege to preach the word of God to us today. So let's get right into it. Money is a complicated subject. When it comes to making money, people are generally very interested. Which jobs make the most money? Which investments have the highest return on, invest, uh, on investment? How can we lower expenses and raise revenue? How can we increase productivity, increase sales, and expand our market? I've noticed that people can talk all day about making money, but when it comes to talking about giving money, even for a worthy cause, it starts to feel a little bit awkward. You know, what percentage of your income are you giving away to those in need? Do you plan to give generously in your budget? Would you be willing to show your budget or expenses to someone else to evaluate how generous you are? Or if you're a Christian, how much are you giving to the ministry of the local church? What are some strategic financial investments you're making for the kingdom of God, for the spread of the gospel throughout the whole world? Or how can you lower expenses and raise revenue for the purpose of giving more generously? And I'm pretty sure that nobody, whether you're a Christian or not, wants to be labeled as stingy. But at the same time, I think we all inherently struggle about being generous. You know, no matter how little or how much we have, we all struggle with being generous. But why should we be generous? Should we be generous because we expect those to return the favor uh, to us one day when we might be in need? Should we give generously just to see ourselves as good and generous people? Should we give generously because our emotions are pulled by vivid and moving portrayals of those in need? You know, those reasons might motivate us to give here and there, but they'll diminish in their effectiveness as people don't always return the favor, as we get tired of feeling guilty for not being as generous as we know we ought to be, and as we just forget and start to feel numb about all the sad and sentimental stories that we hear of those that are in need. So if these reasons won't hold up uh, for the long term, what will? You know, how do we need to rethink and reform our paradigm for generous giving in light of Scripture? And that's what we're going to look at today in, uh, in Scripture. So the one thing for today is give generously to glorify our most generous God. Give generously to glorify our most generous God. Uh, turn your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to be looking at verses 6 to 15. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 6 to 15. And just want to give a little bit of context before we jump into today's passage. So the church in Corinth was first started by Paul and his companions. But then after he left, he wrote a series of letters to them. And 2 Corinthians is the last letter that we have of his to the Corinthian church in the New Testament. So we're currently... Uh, at the end of chapters 8 and 9, which are all about the official collection of funds that Paul has been organizing among the different Gentile or non-Jewish churches for the persecuted and poverty-stricken Jewish church in Jerusalem. So in these two, two chapters, Paul gave them an example of generous giving uh, with the extremely poor churches in Macedonia and an encouragement to give in light of the most generous giving of Jesus Christ himself. And then he also told them that he's sending three brothers in Christ ahead of him before he arrives so that they can help them get ready the funds that they've promised to contribute to this collection for the Jerusalem church. And now at the end of these chapters, Paul concludes by giving some principles about generous giving that are specific to this official collection for the Jerusalem church. But it can also be broadly applied to generous giving in general. So that's where we are in today's passage. So let's read 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 6 through 15. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he is distributed freely. He is given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission flowing from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. This is God's word. We're going to be looking at this passage in six parts, and we're going to see six principles for giving generously to glorify our most generous God. So first is the amount matters. Second is your heart matters. Third is God's purpose matters. Fourth is their response matters. Fifth, God's church matters. And sixth, God's inexpressible gift matters. Keep in mind that all these principles need to be held simultaneously. Uh, There's actually great danger in just holding uh, each of these principles in isolation of all the others. So even as I unpack them one by one, they're going to feel a little bit unbalanced at first, but stick with me to get the fuller picture of these principles held together as we go through all of them. So first, the amount matters. Sow bountifully to reap bountifully. Verse 6 says this, The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So here, Paul summarizes everything that he's been saying to the Corinthian church about giving generously with this well-known proverb, which basically means give little, receive little. Give a lot, receive a lot. Now, before anyone thinks that this is the basis for the prosperity gospel that says that if you have enough faith and if you, if you give generously enough, then God will make you happy, healthy, and wealthy in this life. Uh, that's the prosperity gospel, and that's actually not what Paul is saying here because we should take note of a few things. First, if you look down to verse 10, Paul comes back to this sowing and reaping idea and says that God will increase the harvest of your righteousness. So not material wealth and prosperity, but righteousness. The harvest to be reaped is not material, but spiritual in nature. Second, don't forget that the Macedonian churches that Paul commended and held out as an example were in extreme poverty. And also that the Jerusalem church, from which the gospel had spread throughout the whole world, was also persecuted and poverty-stricken. You know, the prosperity gospel, which is really no gospel at all, would falsely say that these churches were poor because they didn't have enough faith or because they didn't give generously enough. But that's absolutely not true. In fact, they were faithful churches who were commended for some of the most extreme examples of generosity to those in need. So this passage does not teach the prosperity gospel. But I think many of us are so averse to anything that might even suggest the prosperity gospel or anything that might be confused with works righteousness or being saved by our works that we miss the most straightforward reading of this proverb. This passage clearly states that the amount matters. Yes, it's a matter of the heart too, and we'll get to that next, but don't miss the fact that the amount we give matters. I'm sure the farmer didn't think sowing seeds was only a matter of the heart. No, the amount of seed that he sowed mattered because it determined the amount that he would reap. In almost every other situation of our lives, we would never say that the amount doesn't matter. Our salary matters. Our rent matters. Our cost of living matters. 
We think carefully about these amounts because they matter to us. So why would we think that when it comes to giving, the amount doesn't matter? Our salary, rent, and cost of living matter to us because it's, they're connected to what we value in our hearts. Security, status, comfort, convenience, and so on. You know, perhaps part of the reason that we might think that the amount of our giving doesn't matter is because giving generously isn't something our hearts value very much. The amount matters because it engages our hearts. The amount matters because it engages what we value. So according to what you have, what does the amount you give say about your heart? What does it say about what you value? I'm sure we all believe that whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. But the question is, what are you sowing in? And what harvest are you expecting to reap? The amounts don't lie. What we sow in and how much we sow in those areas reveal our heart. So first, the amount matters. So sow bountifully to reap bountifully. And then second, your heart matters. Give thoughtfully and cheerfully. Verse 7 says this, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. To come to a decision in your heart requires some thought. You know, earlier regarding the collection for the Jerusalem church, this is what Paul wrote to the Corinthian church in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 to 2. Now about the collection for the Lord's people, do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. So they were to think ahead of time and decide a certain sum of money to set aside every week that was proportionate to their income. This was a thoughtful, deliberate, consistent, proportionate kind of giving. And that's the kind of giving we should aspire to as well. And notice in verse 7 that this thoughtful planning is happening in our heart. And so Paul goes on to contrast the kind of heart we should not give out of and the kind of heart we should give out of. We should not give reluctantly, which literally means from pain or grief, meaning that it saddens us to give because we think about it in terms of loss rather than gain. And we should not give under compulsion, meaning that we feel forced to give rather than wanting to give freely of our own accord. Rather, we should give cheerfully because God loves a cheerful giver. Let me ask you a question. What kind of heart do you give out of when you pay your taxes? You know, my guess is that when it comes to paying taxes, you probably give reluctantly and under compulsion. It causes you pain or sorrow because you think of it as a loss rather than a gain. And you feel forced because you fear the punishment that the government will enforce if you don't pay your taxes. Now, is that your heart when it comes to giving generously in other areas? Do you feel that giving tithes and offerings to the ministry of the local church is a kind of religious tax, a regular loss you need to incur as a Christian that feels more forced than voluntary? Do you feel that giving to those in need, to missional initiatives, to the work of missions are all just taxes you need to pay as a Christian? You know, it's been said that service to others is the rent you pay for your room here on earth. And that sounds really nice, but if that's really the case, then all generous giving and service are simply paying rent, paying taxes, paying fees that will inevitably be given reluctantly and under compulsion. And if we really think about it, I don't think that we can say that that's commendable at all. Giving generously should not be a tax or a fee. 
But especially for believers, giving generously should be a joy, a joy. The heart matters. God is not only concerned with the act of giving, but he cares about the heart of our giving. God wants us to give cheerfully. In fact, God loves it when we give cheerfully. Of course, it's true that God loves you regardless if you give or not. But God is particularly pleased by you when you give generously because it's an act of faith, which becomes clear in the next point. So the heart matters. Give thoughtfully and cheerfully. And third, God's purpose matters. God gives generously, so you will give generously. Just look at all the superlatives in verse 8. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. In other words, God is able to give you everything necessary in all things at all times to meet your own needs and to give generously to others. There is never a time when you cannot be generous. Earlier, Paul described the Macedonian churches who were experiencing a severe test of affliction and extreme poverty. And even in that season of their lives, their abundance of joy overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. In context here, that every good work that we are to abound in is generous giving, which Paul makes clear in verse 9. And so God is pleased with us when we give generously because it is an act of faith. We believe that God really is able to give us everything necessary in all things at all times to meet our needs and to give generously to others. Verse 9 then says this, As it is written, He has distributed freely. He has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Here Paul quotes Psalm 112, which describes the blessings of a righteous man. And the image of sowing and reaping comes up again as the righteous man is pictured like the farmer distributing or scattering seeds freely uh, to the poor. When it says his righteousness endures forever, that doesn't mean that the man is righteous because he gives freely to the poor. Rather, because he is righteous, he gives freely to the poor. His giving freely to the poor evidences that he is a righteous man. But even that righteousness isn't his own. For the beginning of Psalm 112 begins not praise the righteous man, but it says praise the Lord. God is to be praised because the man's righteousness didn't originate in himself, but in God. So the righteousness that endures forever is God's righteousness that is reflected in this righteous man giving freely to the poor. And verse 10 puts everything together. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. So earlier, it was said, whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. But now, we see that even the seed that is sown is not from the sower, but it's from God. And because the seed is supplied and multiplied from God, God is the one who ultimately gets to decide how the seed should be used. And he has given us our seed, our resources, for the purpose of increasing the harvest of our righteousness. And again, that's actually God's righteousness given to us that we reflect in giving generously to others in need. God gives generously, so you will give generously. And notice, God is not only able to supply, but also multiply your seed for sowing. If you're faithful to give generously with the amount that he's given you now, God will likely give you more to give generously for his purposes. 
And again, please don't mistake this with the prosperity gospel. God will multiply your seed not for your own benefit, but so that you will give more generously to others. The prosperity gospel is self-centered and teaches you to give to get. But the true gospel is Christ-centered and others-oriented, teaching you to die to give and that it is more blessed to give than to receive. This is not the prosperity gospel, but this is simply the principle that if you are faithful with little, you will be entrusted with more. God loves a cheerful giver, and God loves to give more to a cheerful giver so that he will cheerfully give more towards God's purposes. So God owns everything, he supplies everything, and he alone has the right to determine how what he's given to you should be used. And if you think about it, financial stewardship is temporary by nature. All the money and resources God has given to you will, uh, to steward now will one day be useless when you die. You can't take any of it with you. But as one author wrote, you can send it on ahead. And that's what God calls us to do. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19-21 this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Each of us will one day stand before God to give an account for our lives. And Jesus tells different parables to describe how one day our master will return and we will each have to give an account for how we use the resources that he's given to us to steward. So will you be found faithful using the money and resources that he's given you for his purposes? You know, this principle is both true on an individual level and a corporate level. As a church, we are also accountable to God for how we use the resources that he's entrusted to us. You can think of our church budget as kind of a spiritual mutual fund. You know, members of our church faithfully give a portion of their income week after week, and we as a church look for the best ways to invest that money for God's kingdom that contribute to the mission that he's given every church to go and make disciples of all nations, gathering them into local churches through baptism and teaching them to obey everything Jesus has commanded. And so our church gives generously towards those who labor in preaching and teaching so the church is well-fed and equipped with God's word. We give generously to those both uh, to help those both inside and outside our church through financial benevolence. We give generously to support impactful and disciple-bearing missional initiatives. We give generously to support missionaries, and especially the BDH team that we're, we just commissioned today, who are doing gospel work among the unreached. And in the future, we want to give generously to more churches being planted and revitalized so that there would be more healthy gospel witnesses in our city and around the world. Now, as a church, we're called to think about that day when each of our members will stand before God to give an account for how they use their God-given resources. And just like what they would expect from any mutual fund they've committed to, or they've contributed to, they will expect to see a heavenly return on their earthly investment as they've faithfully gave, as they faithfully gave to the spiritual mutual fund of the local church. And so as a church, we also are called to steward the generous giving of God, of God's people to generously invest in God's kingdom according to God's purpose. So God's purpose matters. God gives generously, so you will give generously. And fourth, their response matters. God deserves the thanks and glory for our generous giving. Verses 11 and 13 say this, You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. 
for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. So Paul repeats the same principle that we just unpacked. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way. But then he applies it to their specific context. So through the generous giving of the Corinthian church and the other Gentile churches, the financial needs of the Jerusalem church will be supplied. But that's really not the focus here. The focus is on the response of the Jerusalem church when they receive the funds from them. The generous giving towards the Jerusalem church will produce thanksgiving to God, overflowing in many thanksgivings to God, and they will glorify God. So why would the response be directed to God rather than the Corinthians or any of the other Gentile churches? Verse 13 says, They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others. In other words, the generosity of the Corinthians didn't originate with the Corinthians, but in God and his gospel. When the Corinthians first confessed genuine faith in the gospel of Christ, God had transformed them from the inside out so that they became generous people. And so this act of generosity was simply in accord with who God transformed them to be through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why the Jerusalem church will glorify God not only for their generosity for them, but also for all others, because they know that this generosity was not just a one-time act. The, the gospel has forever changed them into generous people. And so they're confident that the Corinthian believers will continue to show generosity to all others long after this. Now, last week, we defined God's glory as the outward or visible manifestation of who God is. God's glory is the outward or visible manifestation of who God is. And so to glorify God then is to live in such a way that manifests or makes visible who God truly is. So when we give generously, it shows that our God is generous. But when we're stingy, it shows that our God is stingy, which is a lie. You know, how we give not only reveals what we believe about God, but it also manifests or makes visible to others who our God is, regardless of whether that's true or not. As believers, we glorify God then by showing the truth of who God is through our generous giving. And others will glorify God as they see and experience the truth about who God is through our generous giving. This is actually one of the primary motivations of our church's benevolence fund. Yes, we want to help meet the felt needs of others through financial assistance, and we've been doing that. But we always explain the motivation behind our church wanting to help that we give because Christ has given to us. You know, with the complexity of some of the benevolence cases and the time that passes from the beginning to the end of each case, it's easy to forget who the generous giving all stems from. So we do our best to keep God at the forefront so that he gets all the thanks and glory from those who are helped. So whenever you give generously to others, keep God in the forefront of your minds as well. Show others the truth of who God is. And think about God receiving worship and thanks and glory from those who are helped by your giving. And do your best to point them to the gospel of Christ that's transformed you and is motivating you to give even in the first place. For from God, for from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. So the response matters. 
God deserves the thanks and glory for our generous giving. And fifth, God's church matters. Generous giving strengthens the affection and unity of God's people. Verse 14 says this, while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Paul says that after receiving the collection of funds, the Jewish church in Jerusalem will long for and pray for the Gentile churches. To really understand how profound this would have been, we need to understand that Jews and Gentiles, or Gentiles means non-Jews, they were hostile towards one another in the first century. You know, throughout the Old Testament, we see Gentiles were the pagan conquerors and oppressors of the Jewish people. So even when the Gentiles wanted to come and worship the one true God of Israel, the Jews essentially tried to turn them away by disrespecting and desecrating their area of worship in the temple with animals, merchants, and money changers. Money changers. They were hostile towards one another. They did not like each other. The Jews and Gentiles had historical baggage, ethnic prejudice, religious hostilities, and cultural separations. It seemed like nothing in this world could have brought them together. But then Christ came and he changed everything. Through the cross of Jesus Christ, Jews and Gentiles now become one. Peace is made, reconciliation is brought about, hostility is killed, and they are now one new man or one new humanity, as Ephesians 2 would say. So, and then look at the reason given in verse 14 for the Jerusalem church longing for and praying for their Gentile brothers and sisters in Christ. It's because of the surpassing grace of God upon them. You know, they knew that these Gentiles in their natural selves would never have given so generously to Jews. But they knew it had to be the work of the surpassing grace of God in them. And at the same time, the Jews knew that in their natural selves, they would never have longed for and prayed for these Gentiles. And so they knew it had to be the work of the surpassing grace of God in them as well. The gospel broke down the wall of hostility between Jews and Gentiles. And this wasn't just conceptual, but this was tangible. You know, for us, if we say we believe that the gospel breaks down these walls of hostility and breeds affection and unity among God's people, then it has to be expressed tangibly. And that begins with the local church, in the local church. You know, yes, we give generously to one another in need, but the principle is so much more fundamental than just giving generously to one another. You know, our church values being transcultural. That is to make the decision to go through discomforts and difficulties in order to develop understanding and delight in people from a different culture. We value being transcultural because we value being the gospel revealing church that Christ died for us to be. You know, there's nothing wrong with being friends with people who are like us and whom we naturally get along with. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's also nothing remarkable about that. The rest of the world is like that. In the world, like congregates with like. The world follows a general homogeneous principle. But as members of the church of Jesus Christ, who have the surpassing grace of God in us, we should aspire to, to so much more than what the world offers and what the world displays. We should intentionally work to build a community that can only be explained by the gospel of Jesus Christ. A community that tangibly displays and demonstrates the power of the gospel. And there's lots of ways that we can be intentional about this. You know, rather than turning off your camera during our gatherings to remain unseen and unnoticed, you could leave it on and let yourself be known to those you call 
brothers and sisters in Christ. Rather than wishing you were in a different life group with people you're already friends with, you could resolve to go out of your way to get to know the other people in your existing life group and help build a community that isn't centered around common life stage, common socioeconomic class, common work environment, common interests, common personalities, or other commonalities that this world uh, centers around. But we become a community. We intentionally help build a community that is centered on a common faith in Jesus Christ and his gospel. You know, rather than wondering why more people in our church aren't reaching out to you, you could take the initiative to message others and ask how they're doing. And if there's anything that you could pray for them about, focusing more on how God can use you to build others up rather than focusing on how others aren't doing more for you. And perhaps the very means that God will use to build you up is by putting you in a position to love your fellow brothers and sisters who are hard for you to love. Or perhaps you are the difficult person for others to love. And yet others are growing to love you as they grow in experiencing the love of Christ through others themselves. Jesus, on the eve of his crucifixion, called his disciples to love one another as he has loved them so that all people would know that we are his disciples. And he prayed that his people would be one, unified, as he and the Father are one. And then he died to secure that affection and unity for his people. You know, if we've received the gospel of Jesus Christ and we know how much this matters to Christ, then we should act accordingly and do everything we can to strengthen the affection and unity of God's people, of God's church, whether that's through generous giving or any other means. So God's church matters. Generous giving strengthens the affection and unity of God's people. And sixth, God's inexpressible gift matters. God is the most generous giver of all. Verse 15 says this, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. You know, the word for inexpressible is actually not found anywhere else in ancient Greek texts inside or outside the Bible, but this is the first time the word ever shows up in the Greek language. So most people think that Paul made up this word, which means indescribable, unspeakable, too wonderful for words, something that cannot be recounted, narrated, or told. And the only gift of God that can be properly labeled like that as an inexpressible gift is Jesus Christ. There are no words that can do justice to the magnitude and value and generosity of God's gift of His Son for undeserving sinners like us. God created us and provided for our every need. He's been good to us from the very beginning. And yet we have rebelled against him, rejected him as God, and we rightly deserve his judgment. But God, who is rich in mercy and great in love, gave his son as our substitute to live the sinless life we were supposed to live and then die the death we deserve for our sins. So now, if we repent of our sins and believe in Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we can be forgiven of our sins. And just as Christ resurrected to new life, we can be assured that we also will rise with him to new and eternal life. If you're not a follower of Christ, that is the gospel. That is the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the inexpressible gift that God holds out to you. No amount of money or good works could ever pay for or earn what Christ has done on your behalf if you would believe in him. It's not a result of your own doing. It's the gift of God. Now, will you receive 
God's inexpressible gift for you? Will you receive Christ into your life? Then repent of your sins and forsake all counterfeit gods in your life. Believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and begin following him today. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other, no other name under heaven given to among men by which we must be saved. Christ's name alone. If that's you and you are putting your faith in Jesus Christ today, praise God. Tell someone afterwards. Join uh, the Zoom prayer room with one of the pastors afterwards. And we'd love to confirm your faith and help you with some next steps in your fellowship of Christ. Now, if you're already a follower of Christ, then we also need to repent for how, we've, for how, you, how we haven't given generously towards others in a way that shows that we've received this inexpressible gift from God. We need to repent of that. And then we need to reflect on and treasure again this inexpressible gift that God has given us in Christ. And I'd recommend reading and praying verse by verse through Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14, which just oozes with praise and thanksgiving for every spiritual blessing we have in Christ and just soak in what Christ has done for you. I'd also recommend reading and discussing with others a book called A Gospel Primer for Christians by Milton Vincent. It's 31 short devotionals that help you to better understand and apply the gospel of Jesus Christ in your life. Just talk to any of our leaders and they can share with you an excerpt from that book. So here, as Paul has been thinking about the giving of the Corinthians to the Jerusalem church, how the Jerusalem church is going to respond in thanking and glorifying God, and then all the unifying effects it will have on God's larger church. As he's thinking about all of that, he cannot help but to break out in his own spontaneous personal praise and thanksgiving to God for his inexpressible gift. Paul recognized, and we also should recognize, that in all of our generous giving, we can never outgive God. We can never outgive God. He is the most generous giver of all. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Of all the principles of generous giving, this is the primary and foundational principle. If there's any principle that you're going to hold in isolation, this is going to be the one. Because if you get this, you will get everything else. If you don't get this, you get none of the rest. This is what motivates and enables every other principle about generous giving. You cannot consistently do principles one through five unless you get principle six. This is the driving force for everything we've talked about. If you treasure the inexpressible gift that God has given you in Christ, then the amount you give will reflect that. The heart you give out of will reflect that. Who and what you give to will reflect that. Others' response to your giving will reflect that. And the affections and unity of God's church will reflect that. And so after spending two chapters writing to the Corinthians on the collection for the Jerusalem church, Paul concludes and climaxes here. He ends where he began in chapter 8 with the grace of God, the gift of Christ given to his people. And Paul himself now does what he's been writing about and what he longs for all the churches to do. He ends with worship. And so having unpacked all these principles of generous giving, may that be where we end as well in worship of our God for his inexpressible gift in giving thanks and glory to our most generous God. So once again, the one thing is give generously to glorify our most generous God. Give generously to glorify our most generous God. Here's life application. First, 
reflect on the foundational principle that God is the most generous giver of all in giving Jesus Christ as his inexpressible gift. And just a couple suggestions on how to go about that. First, read and pray through Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 to 14. Verse by verse, slowly read a verse, pray everything that comes to mind. Read the next verse, pray everything that comes to mind. And the second thing is, read and discuss a gospel primer for Christians by Milton Vincent. And the excerpt is made available to, by our leaders, just ask them for it. Second life application is who or what can you give generously to this week? You know, maybe it's something that, maybe it's someone that God has been placing in your heart for a while now. Maybe it's to the ministry of the local church. Maybe it's to a certain missional initiative. Maybe it's to the BDH team. You know, whatever it is, according to what you have and what you've decided in your own heart, give thoughtfully and cheerfully to the thanks and glory of God who is so generously given to us in Christ and in all that we have. And again, I know that when it comes to talking about giving money, we probably all feel a little bit uncomfortable. But as we've been going through this passage in 2 Corinthians, can we all just agree, agree to talk about this with one another? Let's agree to talk about this sermon, this, what God has been saying in his word here in 2 Corinthians. Can we agree to talk about it with one another? You know, maybe it's right after Sunday celebration in breakout rooms. Maybe it's with your spouse or your life group sometime this week. Or maybe it's just in the midst of your everyday relationships with one another in our church or with someone else. You know, whenever it is, let's agree to be intentional about talking about God's word and acting on it together. So as a church, in light of the inexpressible gift we've been given in Christ, let's give generously to glorify our most generous God. Let's take some time now to respond to God's word.